Thank you very much, everyone. Those who have helped me to set up here, and those that come in the audience, and uh, let us just ask the Lord to bless this presentation because it's very sensitive material. It, uh, some people may love it, some may not love it. Actually, some may get quite annoyed. So let us just pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless this presentation. Give me the right words to say so that it may be helpful for those who are searching and are honestly looking for truth. May this also help to improve the condition in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> the uh, presentation is called The Crisis of Authority in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Misinterpretation of the Spirit of Prophecy. Now, this is one of the difficulties that we have. You have the, the misinterpretation of the Bible, then you have the misinterpretation of the Spirit of Prophecy, but uh, last, my last presentation was simply the development of the crisis, so that you can see where we are now, how it all came together, and uh, the vague future that we have ahead of us. Now, if everyone understands how to interpret the spirit of prophecy, then great problems would already be solved. But, uh, just as you will see here, the response of the various divisions to the presentation and the vote on the 2015 San Antonio General Conference clearly shows that people have determined that uh, they will get their way, no matter what. So the documentation, and you know, it's all available, is nothing new here. It, uh, there is one that is published in 2016 uh, by the Secretariat of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, and that is the Study of Church Governors, Governance and Unity, and that was published in September 2016. And there you find the whole aspect from the General Conference and how they see the situation and what they feel need to improve and how to get forward to it. You know, you have to keep in mind, we are now three years beyond St. Antonio. And St. Antonio said, we cannot do certain things. And after three years, we still have not found a solution to how to get forward to it. Secondly, that is the North American Division 2018 year-end meeting response to the regard for and practice of the General Conference session and the General Conference Executive Committee actions. So that is the response to whatever took place in St. Antonio. And so if you want to get the accurate doc documentation, there is where you have to go. So we start out to the 2015 General Conference session in San Antonio. And uh, the motion that was made is in the context of church authority. 
Keep it in mind. Here it is. Whereas the Seventh-day Adventist Church affirms that God has ordained that the representative of his church from all parts of the earth, when assembled in general conference session, shall have authority. So that is the highest authority. If he voted, that's going to be. And so this was the motion then that was going to be voted. Therefore, after, and this is for all the two to three thousand delegates, after you have prayerfully studied your study on the ordination from the Bible, the writings of Elonite, and the reports of the study commissions, and after you have carefully consideration of what is the best for the church and the fulfillment of its mission, it is acceptable for division executive committees as they may deem appropriate in their territories to make provision for the ordination of women to the gospel ministry. Yes or no? In the past it was spoken, no. But this is, yes, but in our culture, our society, we are different and we need to have some kind of an exception. So this was a vote for the exception. And if it was accepted in the North American division and in Australia and in Europe, they could go ahead. So yes or no. Can they go ahead or not? Here are the results. Yes, 977. No, 1381. Abstain, 5. It was a total of 2300 votes. And so this motion did not pass. So there is no part in our church that can go ahead unilaterally. So here was then the response to the negotiations for three years. And this was just taking place in November last month. And this was the response of North American Division and the response of the other divisions, uh, three other divisions, is very, very similar. And that is the response of North America to regard for and practice of General Conference Session and General Conference Executive Committee actions, November 6, 2018. They said, and this was the writing committee that uh, put it together, we recognize Christ as the head of the church, Colossians 1.18. We are guided by the Bible as our only creed, the Holy Spirit who inspired and interpreted it, the writings of Ellen White that shines light on it, and a resulting spirit of Christ-like forbearance. So when you look at this, you know, you say, Amen. You go by the Bible, the spirit of prophecy, the Holy Spirit. And so let's see here. <coughs> then the document goes further. The GC document that was presented on the annual council in 2018 moves us away from the principles behind the 1903 reorganization endorsed by Ellen G. White, which decentralized denominational authorities. 
So they appeal to the decentralization of the denominational authorities and not just uh, having it in control in Silver Spring. <coughs> the voicing of our obedience or objections is in agreement with the 1877 General Conference voted actions which allow for questioning any General Conference vote shown to conflict with the word of God and the rights of individual conscience. Review and Herald of October 4, 1877, page 106. And if you look at this, you know, no. Why not? You know, if there is an action that is in conflict with the word of God, we don't accept it. And if it goes against our conscience, we don't accept it either. So this seems to be positive things. And we are going to evaluate this. Then, the writing committee continues. Ellen G. White, in response to an 1888 General Conference session, vote she had counseled against, later wrote, it was not right for the conference to pass it. <coughs> it was not in God's order, and this re resolution will fall powerless to the ground. I shall not sustain it, for I would not be found working against God, and I will not give it countenance for a moment. Letter 22, 1889, pages 10 and 11. We believe the church should take heed of this counsel, at this moment in our history. So that is what the response is. And, you know, looking at this response, it doesn't seem to be bad. The word of God, the spirit of prophecy, the Holy Spirit. Now, here is a problem. There is a confusion now about what Ellen White wrote concerning the authority of the Asian Church. What did she really write? There is a controversy here. In fact, some argue that her views on the authority of the General Conference session changed. So once it was that view, and now she changed. And therefore, it is not clear at the very end. And so our observation was, we need to look at all her statements on the General Conference and authority before we come to a final conclusion. You know, comparing scripture with scripture. Getting everything together on the same subject, and then, if you have them all there, you will see a result. So the first testimonies on the authority of the General Conference comes from 1875. In 1875, she wrote to Charles Lee, it was a Scandinavian believer who was very forceful in his authority. And Elamite wrote, quote, the word of God does not give license for one man to set up his judgment in opposition to the judgment of the church. Either he is allowed to urge his opinions against the opinion of the church. If 
there were no church discipline and government, the church would go to fragments. It could not hold together as a body. Third volume of the Testimonies, 428. Here we get, keep in mind here, one man against the church. You see here? If you speak out very forcefully, thank you, then that is the problem. Here is the confrontation. That is what Ellen White brings out. You have to respect the body. And if there is no church discipline and government, the church would go to fragments. So in other words, discipline is necessary. Then a little later on, same year, she wrote to George Butler, who seemed to have misinterpreted a statement about his authority because of the Presidential General Conference. And when I says, I have been shown that no man's judgment should be surrendered to the judgment of any one man. But when the judgment of the General Conference, which is the highest authority that God has upon the earth, is exercised, private independence and private judgment must not be maintained, but must be surrendered. Your error was in persistently maintaining your private judgment of your duty against the voice of the highest authority the Lord has upon earth. You did not seem to have a true sense of the power that God has given to his church in the voice of the general conference. So here we see here clearly that we should not surrender our judgment, but when it is given to the general conference, then we should be careful how we use our private judgment. The highest authority, the highest authority. So, you can have questions later on. This is recorded. Ellen Weiss' position in 1875 is plain. One man's mind, one man's judgment is not sufficient to be trusted. Third volume of the Testimonies 445. Do not give to one man that authority and influence which God has invested in his church in the judgment and voice of the General Conference. That is the same book, page 493. It is the General Conference which is the highest authority that God has upon the earth. Page 492. Now the question here is, what is now man's what is now meant by general conference? Today, Adventists would probably refer to a permanent overarching uh, organization in the world headquarters in Silver Spring. You know, that's what you normally would say. And in the organization, reorganization in 1901, you have the general conference and the divisions, then the unions, then the conferences, and then the churches. And so that is now since that time. But before that, it was a little different. So again, what is mentioned by the General Conference? 
In our first two or three decades, however, there was almost no permanent structure or staff. When church members and the church leaders wrote of the general conference in these early years, they typically mentioned the GC session. And they had a session every year. This fits with Ellen White's comments. It is negative about an individual exercising authority. But the statements are very positive about being exercised by the church as a collective body of believers. You can see here, the one individual or the body. And she has great respect for the body. Now we get in the 1890s, and she makes a number of statements there that uh, unless you take the context, you don't know really what she's talking about sometimes. Some have argued that what is clear, it is clear that sometimes Ellen White considered the decisions of the General Conference to represent God's leading, and sometimes she did not. So what are we going to make of that? The context of Ellen White's statements makes it clear, however, that her concern was with the claims to exercise the authority by one man, or in the 1890s by a small group, rather than the entire body of Adventists. See? So if you don't understand this, you're going to draw incorrect conclusions. One man... This becomes clear if we distinguish between the different meanings of the General Conference in the 1890s. Because by that time, it was one, the GC administration. And that was in Battle Creek. It was the president, the permanent staff around him. But it is also referred to the General Executive Committee, which at this time was very tiny. Just a couple of people. And they did the day-to-day, -day seemingly, uh, work. And thirdly, the general conversation. So you see, there's three different things. And unless you look at the context, you draw wrong conclusions. And that is probably one of the cases of the confusion among us today. The general conference in the first two senses... She denied, represented the voice of God. But, rather than the GC sessions. So let's now look here at the distinction between the GC administration and the GC session. Ellen White clearly distinguished between the GC administration and the GC session. In 1891, she wrote, quote, There was not the voice of God in the general conference management and decisions. Methods and plans would be devised that God did not sanction. And yet, the general conference president made it appear that the decisions of the general conference were the voice of God. See, you have to be very, very careful what is taking place here. The problem then was with those managing the GC or the general conference administration as we would now say. The control was 
concentrated in just a few hands, rather than a representative body, as Ellen White points out. Quote, One or more men gave assent to measures laid out before the broad board or councils. But all the time they decided they would have their own way and carry out matters as they chose. End quote. Then her verdict was, quote, Many of the positions taken going forth as the voice of the General Conference have been the voice of one, two, or three men who were misleading the conference. Manuscript 33, 1891. Again, the distinction between the two. Ellen White used the term General Conference when speaking of the body in Battle Creek the site of the headquarters of the GC administration. There were only seven members of the GC committee at this time, and evidently the committee could too easily be sidetracked as a result. In a testimony written in 1895, Elmite writes, as for your book committee under the present administration, with the men who now preside, I would not entrust to them for publication in books the light given me of God. As for the voice of the general conference, there is no voice from God through that body that is reliable. Manuscript 57, 1895. Then a few years later, writing from Australia to friends in the U.S. in the middle of the 1898, Elmite strongly stated that, quote, it has been some years since I have confidently considered the general confidence as the voice of God, end quote. Later regretting that she does not have a, quote, strong faith in the Battle Creek and the workings of the cause of God in the institutions there, end quote. Letter 77, 1898. Now we go a few years later, in 1901. 1901, the General Conference is very, very important because it's a conference dealing with the reorganization of the church. At the 1901 GC, she called for a major structural reform. She made an appeal, quote, what we want now is reorganization, end quote. Again, quote, there are to be more than one or two or three men to consider the whole vast field, end quote. Later she adds, quote, Now I want to say God has not put any kingly power in our rank to control this or that branch of the work. The work has been greatly restricted by the effort to control it in every line. That is from the General Conference proceeding, April 2, 1901. Again, she continues somewhere else, quote, God wants us to come to a place where we shall be united in the work, where the whole burden will not be laid on two or three men, end quote. Manuscript 43A, 
You see here? Are we united as a body? Or are we following two or three men? I hope you can see her emphasis throughout the years. is very, very consistent in this. Notice there is no contradiction between her counsels in 1875 and her views in 1901. Just as in 1875, she had cautioned against granting too much authority to individuals. So in 1901, she warns against the unrepresentative authority exercised by individuals. And she called that kingly power. Or tiny groups of leaders, two or three men. It is the abuses of such leadership she proved repeatedly in the 1890s. And now, in 1901, she makes a clear claim to be the voice of God. So as a result of the reorganization, all the committees are greatly enlarged. And not one or two or three have the controlling power. It included, at the time, the creation of unions throughout North America as well as in Australia and Europe. Conferences became members of union constituencies, with unions now becoming constituent members of the General Conference. So you share all kinds of responsibilities. Unions had now considerable authority delegated to them to avoid over-concentration of authority in too few Hence, I hope you can see here the importance that took place, especially at that time. <coughs> there was also a major reform of the General Conference Executive Committee. And Ellen White urged that, quote, a power and strength must be brought into the committees by increasing, end quote, by increasing the membership. Again, General Conference Procedures, April 2, 1901. Page 25. The General Conference Executive Committee membership was increased now to 25 from the small thing before. Virtually doubled. And every union president became now an ex-officio member of the GC Executive Committee. So if you are a union president, automatically you would be on the GC Committee. Now, in 1903, again, you have a general conference there, and she makes statements against kingly power. But you will see that the kingly power is not directed to the GC president or some of the other people, but in another power that came here. In the summer of 1903, she counseled the leaders of the Adventist medical work against the what she repeatedly calls kingly power. Now, what was going on in the medical work, friends? She was referring not to the GC administration, but rather to Dr. Kellogg's tendency to centralize authority in his own person, which was one of Ellen White's long-standing concerns about Kellogg. And you can find it in Eighth Testimony, page 232 and 233. Later in, 18, in 1903, in the reflection prompted by the coverage in mainstream news media of the dispute between the church leaders and Kellogg, 
White returned to the earliest themes, repudiating the notion that one man wielding, quote, kingly power could, quote, control the whole body, end quote. Eight testimonies, 236 and 237. And if you read the whole struggle between Ellen White and the church and Kellogg, you saw that that Kellogg wrestled the whole medical institution there in Battle Creek, away from the church. And he had much greater ambitious programs to do much more. But, but fortunately, that did not take place. So one man, yielding kingly power, could control the whole body, the whole church. Again, in 1901, there is a statement that Sir Kenzie made on authority, which follows the statements of 1875 and 1901. Ellen White said, quote, I have often been instructed by the Lord that no man's judgment should be surrendered to the judgment of any other one man. Never should be the mind of one man or the minds of a few men be regarded as sufficient in wisdom and power to control the work that is to say and to say what plans shall be followed, end quote. Ninth volume of the testimony, page 260. Again, quote, but when the general conference, in the general conference, the judgment of the brethren assembled from all parts of the field is exercised. Private independence and private judgment must not be stubbornly maintained but surrendered. You see here, the emphasis is now stubbornly maintained. And if you do that, you scatter the unity of the church. Never, she said, should a laborer regard it as a virtue, the persistent maintenance of his position of independence contrary to the decision of the general body. Again, 90 to 60. So I hope you can clearly understand now her, her, her way of reasoning what is the authority of God and what is not. Elamite continues, at times when a small group of men entrusted with the general management of the work have, in the name of the general conference, sought to carry out unwise plans and to restrict God's work, I have said that I could no longer regard the voice of the general conference represented by these few men as the voice of God. Again, nine testimonies to uh, 16. But, she continues, this is not saying that the decisions of a general conference composed of an assembly of duly appointed representative men from all parts of the field should not be respected. God has ordained that the representative of his church from all parts of the earth 
when assembled in a general conference, shall have authority. The error that some are in danger of committing is given to the mind and judgment of one man or of a small group of men the full measure of authority and influence that God has vested in his church. In the judgment and voice of the general conference assembled to plan for the prosperity and advancement of his church. Again, 9260. Again, the few against the duly elected of the world field. And so Ellen Knight's consistent views on authority in 1875, 1901, 1903, and 1909 are very, very similar. Ellen White's position in 1909 is consistent with those stated in 1875, 1901, and 1903. <coughs> in the 1875 testimonies, she stresses that no one leader could embody this church on earth or represent God's will. In 1909, she repeated her view of the mind and judgment of one man, but extends us now to include a small group of men. They, not any one man, should be given the full measure of authority and influence God has vested in his church. Again, 90 to 60. <coughs> then she continues. In 1911, God has made his church on earth a channel of light, and through it he communicates his purposes and his will. He does not give to one of his servants an experience independent and contrary to the experience of the church itself. Neither does he give one man a knowledge of his will for the entire church, while the church, Christ's body, is left in darkness." God has vested, invested his church with special authority and power, which no one can be justified in disregarding and despising. For he who does this despises the voice of God. Review and Herald, May 11, 1911. And so if you keep that in mind, in the struggles that are going on today in the church, you know, here is a clearly, and those statements were preceding the vote in 2015. And everybody seems to agree. And now this, ah, but she is not consistent. She has changed. You know, all those kind of things. And of course, we will look at some of these statements. What about this argument that we just read before? Ellen White, in response to an 1888 general conference session vote, she had counseled against later on. So here was the conference and she counseled against, but the vote went to, to, uh, through anyway. It says here, she wrote, it was not the right for the conference to pass it. It was not God's order, in God's order, that his resolution will fall powerless to the ground. 
I shall not sustain it. For I would not be found working against God. This is not God's way of working. And I will not give it countenance for a moment. Letter 22, 18, 89, pages 10 to 11. So, what is that? This is definitely not a group of a few people. This is a statement about a general conference session. And so the NAD is right then. You know, here it is. And she speaks against it. And that's true. And so let us now see what was this resolution. Because we have seen how important the 2015 resolution was. Dealing with the unity of the church. And some parts of the church went unilaterally go ahead and other ones not. And this has been an issue that has been with us for over 40 years. So it's not just a little thing, you know. And she spoke against it. So what was that? If you go then to the letter, the resolution that Ellen White objected to. Ellen White refers here to training all licentiates in the canvassing work for permitting them to enter the ministry. This was to be an absolute rule, and notwithstanding all I had to say against this resolution, it was carried. Same letter, 22, 1888. So the licentiates who were going into the ministry, they had a license. But it was requested that they first spend time in canvassing before they could go into ministry. What about this? How important is that resolution? You know, this is not something that, you know, involves the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. No, it's a very minor thing, but she speaks out against it. And so, yes, a general conference in session can make a mistake. Now, the question is, what over 40 years, all the resolutions that have taken place and all the negative rejections, is that insignificant? When it splits whole churches, conferences against each other, unions, divisions, that is not an insignificant thing, friends. And so here now, she speaks, and the Bible also is, no unilateralism. Now, what is unilateralism? You go it on your own. Independent of the body. Unilateral action of important matters is contrary to the biblical model and to long-standing Adventist practice. Significant decisions should be made after prior consultation with other levels of church structure and should be in harmony with the decisions already taken by a wider body of believers. See, you just don't go by yourself. This approach helps to guard against distraction and division, promoting unity in the church life and an emphasis on mission. And why is it unbiblical? Here we see the divisiveness present 
with unilateralism is inconsistent with the biblical model of church as a body. When Paul uses the metaphor of the body for the church, he describes different organs of the body, criticizing each other and imagining that they can be independent of each other. So the heart goes on its way, the lungs, the kidneys, the blood, and what do you have? A dead person. The Bible emphasizes harmony of the operation of all organs of the body. Its different parts are to work together as a whole, with all the members in sympathetic relationship with one another. Paul's conclusion was that there should be no schism in the body or church, but that the members should have the same care for one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 25. Furthermore, Paul calls on believers to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians 5, 21. Although there can be a diversity and difference of opinion or practice in the body of believers, this should not separate them to the point of a schism or split. What matters is how believers respond to a diverse situation. The believer's response should be the need for mutual submission to each other to preserve the unity and exclude unilateral action. Very clear. Ellen White opposes unilateralism. Ellen White maintains that collective and collaborative rather than independent or unilateral decision-making processes should be the norm in the Seventh-day Adventist Church because the church is one body. In a testimony written in, 18, in the 1880s, first published in 1889, she states firmly, one point will have to be guarded against, and that is individual independence, end quote. She wrote, quote, each laborer should act with reference to others. Followers of Jesus Christ will not act independently of one another. In unity there is strength. Five testimonies, 535 and 6. In 1885, she urged Adventist leaders in Europe, where you have multi-ethnic, multinational, you know, entities working, to each, working with each other. And she urged the leaders in Europe, quote, all should make it a point to counsel together. No one worker has all the wisdom that is needed. There should be comparing of plans a counseling together, end quote. Letter 66, 18, 86. Twenty years later, she counseled church leaders who disagreed about how to work for different nationalities and ethnic groups. Writing of the visions arising from ethnic differences, she encouraged them to, quote, 
put all this aside. So, no, I, I'm a German, I'm a Dutch, I'm a French. Oh, the Americans think differently. No. Put it all aside. Maybe that is the reason why the growth in certain countries is so deplorable. And why it is so excellent in other countries. She charges me. She charges them to, quote, work together in harmony. Forgetting that the Americans or Europeans, Germans or Frenchmen, Swedes, Danes or Norwegians. And she warned, we are not to seek to maintain a peculiar identity of our own which will separate us from our fellow laborers. Nine Testimony 187. And maybe we should realize some of those statements and practice it in the, even in our own countries. So what is now those councils? How have we applied Ellen Wright's councils? Representation and decision-making. Now, instead of in the past, at every five years, at the General Conference sessions, more than 2,000 delegates from every union throughout the world do business. See? It's not just one or two. And with 2,000, 3,000 people, you cannot manipulate. You cannot. So, so you can see here that her council of a small group making the decisions is gone. Even, and if you read very carefully your church manual, you see that it never talks about the head elder. It talks about the first elder. First among equals. And you counsel together. And when you counsel together and you run the church together, then you send out your minister in raising up other churches. Interesting, isn't it? Elmer speaks very strongly against sitting pastors and pastors as God wants to do it in the early church. <laughs> in addition to several hundred local conferences and missions, a total of 135 unions and 13 divisions, each with defined authority in its territory and its own executive committee, are making collaborative decisions. And unions also have constituencies which have their own sessions. So you can see here that the total interaction between church members on all committees is an absolute must for God to work through. Again, how are our councils applied? So you have here the general conference session. Five years later, the next one. In between is the general conference executive committee, which is a body representative of the world church that meets regularly twice a year. Every union president sits on this committee, which additionally includes frontline workers lay people from every division, and youth representation. Its several hundred members are of both genders and are drawn from around the world. 
This committee takes major decisions delivering the judgment and the voice of the general conference while reserving the most important matters to the GC session, the highest authority that God has upon earth, whose judgment is definitive. <coughs> so that is the ideal. And they we operate on this. However, not everybody agrees with this. And so we see then some invalid practices coming into the church. And here we see then, <coughs> remember, there was decisions made in regard to shall we go on with ordination of women or not. And so when it was voted down, immediately after that, you see that conferences are continuing to do this. Videos are produced. Edmund is women plus equality means unity. And unless there is not the equality in ministry and no gender differences, we have disunity. At least that is being promoted. And so here then, invalid ordinations. Now criteria for ordination, as noted earlier, have always been set by the world church, not by a conference or a union or a division. Initially by GC sessions, but by the GC executive committee since 1930, when responsibility for the selection of candidates of ordination was devolved to unions who would apply the criteria set by the world church. This comes from Union and Ordinations, GC Secretariat Statement, August 2015. So what do you see here? Is that the World Church sets the criteria and not the unions. And we have seen in several divisions that unions are now determining the criteria. And what are you going to do? You need to implement some measures to keep us together. For the first 60 years of the denomination's history, women regularly received ministerial licenses, while since 1981 they have been commissioned as ministers. But women have never been ordained to gospel ministry which the Seventh-day Adventist Church has consistently regarded as qualitative, different from the licensing or commissioning. And here you see some pictures of the women who were licensed here to for ministerial work. The 1881 General Conference briefly debated a subcommittee proposal to allow the ordination of women but referred it to the GC Executive Committee and it died there. Wasn't picked up? We simply said, no, we don't do that. And it was not picked up. The issue did not come to a session again until 1990. That year, the GC session considers at length whether or not to permit female pastors to be ordained 
and did more than decline to change the status quo. It took a different action. Quote, we do not approve ordination of women to the gospel ministry. End quote. For the 55-99 session, action July 11, 1990, see the GC minutes of 1990, 1039 to 1040. So therefore, when you hear around you, you say, oh yeah, you know, we, there is nothing in the policy that forbids women to be ordained. They're absolutely wrong. Deadly wrong. Because we voted it. But you know, that is about 20 plus years ago. And who, who remembers those things? And when you don't remember, people are running ahead. Then, proposals came to both the 1995 and 2015 regional conference to allow regional variation of general limited policy. But both were rejected. It is incorrect, therefore, to assert that there is no, that there is nothing in denominational policy to stop unions from ordaining females to the gospel ministry. And yet they go ahead. What to do? If you are the General Conference Executive Committee or General Conference Administration, if the world field gives you the, the command to do something about it, and you don't, then you need to be replaced. So, but you know, with, with all kinds of um, parliamentary procedures, you can relay things. And that has now been the case here for three years. Such ordinations have been explicitly disallowed by the General Conference Session Action in 1890, and in this, or uh, 1990, and a decision reinforced by two other GC sessions voted in 1995 and 2015. Today's issue is about church authority. Has the general conference session the highest authority in the Seventh-day Adventist Church? And if you study the spirit of prophecy, the answer is very clear. And yet, Satan is muddling and make it very unclear. And so, therefore, this information that I share now with you, you need to share with people who are confused. And get them out of the fog. Here is now the opposition to the General Conference compliant document. This is the final document now after three years modified, modified, modified. And that was now presented. And was accepted by the World Church. But not by the North American Division. Here you see then the North American Division. With the Columbia... And Pacific Union continued to ordain females. The trans-European division with some Scandinavian unions are abolishing ordination altogether as being unbiblical. And that was not the conclusion of TASC, the Theology of Ordination Study Committee. That was presented to the annual council and presented to the general conference and it was accepted. It's biblical. 
Yet, they don't. The Inter-European Division with two German unions rejects the compliance document. The South Pacific Union, Pacific Division. But keep in mind, it may sound very impressive, but keep in mind that these divisions make only up barely 10% of the SDA World Church membership. So it is a tiny minority but in some way they seem to be very vocal. And publishing that, and uh, what is now the basis of the justification of rejecting this Jelenkov session as the authority of God, the highest authority? These entities have misinterpreted Ellen White's statement on the authority of the General Conference. Very clearly. And with misinterpretation, you can come very, very close. Well. And there are scholars on both sides. And if there are scholars, you better stop your mouth. And you bow down to the image. But we don't. We bow down only to the Lord. Amen. And so, friends, they fail to make a distinction between the authority, between the General Conference Administration and the General Conference Executive Committee in the DC sessions. And I have clearly showed you that it is a clear distinction. The context of Ellen White's statement showed that she did not consider the first two entities as the voice of God, but did accept the General Conference session with full representation from leaders all over the world as God's voice. And that are presently thousands that are coming together every five years. As long as this misuse of the spirit of prophecy continues, the crisis of authority in the SDA church will not be solved. But unfortunately, there are many of our lay members in all kinds of churches that have no idea about those things, have no idea what is going on. And frequently because they have not been informed by their own leadership. But I'm, I have a burden to inform our leadership because if we don't inform the people, what is it, then this continues to weaken the church. And we have to stand up for the strength of the church. And what does the Lord, who give all this counsel, think about us? Again, therefore, you know, if you are concerned about write letters to Elder Wilson affirming his mission, and also to Elder Jackson, telling him the importance of united action and not unilateral action. See? And the more we write, the more success they'll do. But if they don't get any letters from the flock, they feel confident that they represent the whole body, the whole nation, which is not true. And so... Will your anchor hold? There you see the lighthouse. And tremendous storms that have been predicted will come upon the church. But there is hope. There is hope. In one of the earliest visions, Ellen White sees Brother, Brother Fitch Stockman, who died before the disappointment, and she meets them in a vision. 
And the brethren said, how was it in the last days? And the storms. And she says, we tried to call up our greatest trials, but they looked so small compared with the far more exceeding eternal weight of glory that surrounded us, that we could not speak them out. And we cried out, Hallelujah! Heaven is steep enough. And we touched our glorious harps and made heaven's arches ring. Worse to the little flock. Isn't it encouragement? My wife said, you know, after all those pessimistic things, you certainly need to have something that cheers up. And she puts this picture at the end. She is the artist in our family. And so, friends, uh, this is then. And then again, I would tell you here the documentation, if you want to read it for yourself. That is a study of church governors, governance and unity, September 20, September 20. 16, Sectariat of Jelen Conference, Seventh-day Adventists. And the North American Division, 2018 year-end meeting response to the regard for and practice of the Jelen Conference session and Jelen Conference Executive Committee actions. It's all there in the open. And, uh, and I simply have used everything that is already free via the Internet. And if you go to Google, you find it listed there, you put them in there, and the whole document you can print off. So may the Lord continue to bless this church, to bless this conference, to bless this union and the vision. And let us pray that we keep our mind together and follow the counsels of the Lord. Follow the prophets and you will prosper. And if you don't follow the prophets, you will ultimately perish. May God bless you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.